Hey there, I'm Jo, and this is Looking Outside. Join me and some of the most influential and original thinkers in business and beyond as we explore fresh takes on familiar topics. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Looking Outside. Joining me today is Dr. Nora Gold. We are going to explore narratives, the stories that define us with us knowing or not, how that impacts our perception of the world and how that can empower us. A really interesting topic. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Nora. Well, thank you so much for having me. I will start by getting you to introduce yourself to the audience. Well, I'm someone with a multifaceted career. I've done a number of different things. I'm a prize-winning author of three books of fiction. My books are Marrow and Other Stories, Fields of Exile and the Dead Man. I've won two Canadian book awards and praise from Alice Munro, among others. And I have a fourth book coming out in 2024. I was also a social work professor and researcher. I received seven funded research grants and focused on women's health, mental health, disability issues, racism, and so forth. I've also been active as a volunteer. I helped to co-found three social progressive organizations in Canada dealing with social justice and promoting dialogue and equality. And last but not least, I'm the founder and editor of an online literary journal called JewishFiction.net, which publishes first-rate Jewish-themed fiction from around the world, either written in English or translated from 18 languages. And we have readers in 140 countries. I obviously love stories, uh, the kind we're going to talk about, people's life narratives and so forth. But of course, I also love to read and write fiction. And on a more personal note, I am a first-time grandmother now, just recently, and I'm very excited about that. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, definitely. Well, congratulations on being a grandmother, and also congratulations on the book that's coming out as well in 2024. We'll definitely pop the links to your existing books in the show notes for anyone that is interested in the award-winning work from Dr. Nora Gold. So I have a question to start, which um, I'm always incredibly fascinated and inspired, I would say, by people who have multiple multifaceted careers or who have transitioned from one area to another and still kind of, you know, dip their toe in lots of different ponds. That's definitely something that I try to do with my life as well. I think it really makes you, you know, such a more well-rounded, curious person so you mentioned research, social work, volunteering, writing books, creating a platform. So what what is the pull for you to do that? Well, that's, that's a great question and not one I've thought about that much. I think there are certain things that, that I've always done. I always wrote stories. And I think writing is, can be a rather isolating experience. You know, you're alone much of the day. And I wouldn't really say it's a competing issue, but I've always been very concerned about the world. As you know, we have a wonderful world, but we have a world with facing many, many challenges and many problems. And I guess that's reflected in the fact that I'm both a writer and had a career in social work. I've always felt the need for both an outer life, I guess, and an inner life. 
That's really well put, an outer life and an inner life. And there's a juxtaposition as well in what you said about the isolation of writing and the connections that you seek with a lot of your other work, like your social work in particular, and getting involved in social justice issues. So how does narratives play a role in that for you or storytelling? How does it connect those kind of two opposites of your worlds? I think narratives and stories have a great power in the world. I don't think of stories, and at this moment we're talking about stories as in the stories you read in fiction and novels and so forth. I don't think of that as being just entertainment or something that happens between you and the book. I think stories can create bridges between people. I think they can change people. They can introduce you to people from different cultures and different faiths. And I think it can be, in some ways, a very radical thing to encounter stories in a deep way. I think that stories have a very special power. The ones that we read from books... You know, what happens when you read fiction is quite unlike anything else. What happens is that your defenses really drop. And once you decide to keep reading beyond the first few pages of a book, you know, even if the main character is like an axe murderer, what happens is you let this person inside yourself. And once you've done this, you enter their inner world, you see the world through their eyes, and you come out different. There's actually stories introduce you in an intimate way to otherness and differentness at a very unconscious level. And in fact, there's fantastic research. And here again is this coming together of the different parts of me. But there's tremendous social science research that shows clearly that people who read good fiction, literary fiction, become more empathic in real life, not just in themselves, but actually that it changes them profoundly. So I see narratives because they come from such a deep unconscious place. If you're reading someone's work, you're, you're connecting with their unconscious. And they talk, these stories talk to us from a deep place and they talk to a deep place in us. And then what's amazing about stories in our lives, the stories of our lives, our narratives, is that you can also talk back to them and you can change them. You know, there's a dialogue between your conscious and your unconscious. So the stories about our lives not only change over time, but we can help them to change. You know, for example, if you want to do something differently or you want to be different in a certain way, it's sort of like driving when you're driving. If you look in a certain direction, the wheel kind of just seems to just go by itself. So you have to be able to imagine something different in order to be different. And stories make this happen in our lives. I think of them as having a certain kind of magic that nothing else has. Yeah, definitely magical. In particular, the the story that you mentioned right at the front, I'm hoping you were alluding to Crime and Punishment, which is one of my favorite books and stories. I love <laughs> that book. I love that book. Yes. We're not, I guess we're not going to get into listing all the stories we read when we were younger that we loved. But I read that in high school. And mm. it's interesting, you, you can, you know, a book is different at different points in your life. But I remember thinking, is this telling me that I can do whatever I want? Like, what is this point? What is this book? You know? Yeah, fabulous books. 
It's such an interesting um, one. We could do a whole podcast on this one, I think. Um, but, you know, it really made me think when I was reading it about how Raskolnikov had this ability, to, well, ability. He had a desire to act on immoral things, but then his entire persona was very moral and he really like cared about Sonia and he cared about the people in his life. So that kind of you know, multifaceted, going back to that word, kind of elements of our personas and how we are not simple human beings. We can be, you know, the anti-hero and we can have these dark parts of ourselves. Going back to what you're saying, you can find that empathy and that understanding, even with the people who you seemingly couldn't relate to. It's such a powerful thing that that stories can do. That's amazing how you put it. It's so beautiful and it's so true. I mean, that whole idea that we had when we were younger, and unfortunately, some people still have it, that there are good people and bad people, (laughs) you know, that there's such a thing as someone who's just completely bad and is beyond the pale of humanity. And I think what happens when you exchange stories, you know, your own story of your life, even if you're just talking with a friend, is just we encounter how complex we are, how other people are. And I think that's where the real, where real humanity comes. That's why when I said about stories having power to change the world, to some people that may sound silly. I mean, it's just a book. It's just a story. But all change, all revolutions, as they say, start in the mind. And if you look at the world differently, you're a different person, you act differently, and you can bring about change. Mm, so powerful. All revolutions start in the mind. I love that. Yeah, I, I didn't and, make that up, obviously, but I don't remember <laughs> the quote of the story. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And that ability to perceive the world differently is incredibly powerful in, a, in and of itself. But the ability for you as an individual to reflect on what you are observing in the world and trying to use that as a lever to build empathy with other people is really important. There's a piece of research that I was reading recently for a psychologist was writing about how the amount of time that we dedicate to reading fictional stories, we really, going back to what you were saying, I think is that investment that we make in the characters, that time and emotion that we give dedicated to that character situation in literature can create like a next level of empathy to that person and their situation that I think a lot of the times we in business, we talk about building empathy with our consumers or we talk about building empathy with each other at work, but it's kind of spoken about. It's not felt or experienced in the same way that you can when you're like really investing in a character. I think that's so true. And, you know, one of my concerns, many concerns about the world, but one is that There's a book by someone called Marianne Wolf called Reader, Come Home. And it's about the fact that the digital world has made it harder to read, to read not just obviously text messages and so forth and for work, but to read deeply, to read fiction, to really enter into the experience of somebody else. And it's a terrific book, but it relates to what you're saying because she ties it not only to what it means that we're not thinking as deeply and thinking as clearly, but also what it means for empathy and what it means for democracy, what it means for our capacity to make up our own minds and trust ourselves in a way that doesn't happen if you don't read. 
and it's hard to read. I, I think everybody's finding it's harder to read now that we live in a digital world. And I won't go on and on about it, but it's very much to your point about the depth of experience you can have from stories that you can't really, it's different from everything else. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the research about empathy, what's amazing is that the people who were given in these experiments who were given fiction to read as opposed to something else, afterwards were given, were put in a psychological experiment context that required them to do something or not do something for a person in trouble. And the people who had read good fiction behaved completely differently. I mean, the significant change in their behavior from before the reading was remarkable. So anyway, not to go on and on about the importance and power of books, but of course, that's where I come from. Of course, of course. And I think a lot of people just see them as a a creative outlet or a hobby as a way to escape, but they can help you to connect with the world as well. I think also when we're trying to understand ourselves and maybe think about reading something that is more helpful, we, I think a lot of people, we, I say royal we, but a lot of people would lean towards nonfiction or maybe narrative nonfiction because it feels a little bit more prescriptive. So I, I love the idea of kind of encouraging people to do that same thing with fiction. Actually, I think, and I've read articles about this, especially since 9-11, people are very suspicious of fiction. They want what they think of as truth. There's a really big difference between facts and truths. For example, somebody who says, I, I, I won't need fiction because it's not true. I want a real book about real things. But fiction isn't factual, but it often tells us, I think, as much or more truth than nonfiction books. And for example, you know, it, it's one of the great paradoxes, actually, of fiction. As Camus had a wonderful saying, fiction is the lie through which we tell the truth. And, you know, Khaled Hosseini said, writing fiction is the act of weaving a series of lies to arrive at a greater truth. It's a fascinating thing, but if you're really looking for truth and understanding our world and ourselves in a deep way, I think fiction is the way to go, which is, of course, no comment. I read nonfiction, too, with great pleasure, and I love learning that way. But this devaluation of fiction, I think it's part of, of a current mistrust and even contempt for the arts because the arts represent the imagination, the human spirit, creativity, and these are frightening for certain reasons to to certain kinds of people. And the thing is too, when you talk about narratives about people as opposed to about books, there isn't that much about people that you could consider factual. I mean, factual in a sort of static way, you know, an apple's an apple. But if you're People are constantly changing, and also everything is subject to interpretation. So what is a fact about a person or their story, you know? Like, you could be the worst student in your class, but you don't feel like a failure, because to you, that's not important. You're not good on the hockey team, so what? That's not how you measure your self-worth. So you could say the fact is that you're crummy at all these things, but it doesn't mean anything, really. We don't really live inside ourselves. We don't live in a world of fact. We live in another way, in another place. So the fact that stories are imaginative rather than factual 
is the power that they have to propel us forward because they allow us to change. They don't pigeonhole us as one thing. I don't even know what facts you could give about me that are unchangeable. You know, what you touched on kind of connects into emotions and the role that emotions play in how we perceive the world and ourselves and situations and Oftentimes, I think when we talk about narratives or stories or conveying something to another person, we think we need to do it with our logical mind. But we know that we are emotional creatures that are much more motivated by emotional pulls and emotional stories and cues and triggers. So that's where narratives can be so powerful. Do you think that that's under leveraged? Is that ability to really connect on a more emotional narrative level? I think you're very correct. I think it's a, that is where the power of connection lies. I mean, we're human beings and it isn't the facts about you that form a friendship with somebody else. It's the stories you tell about yourself. And I think the stories we tell inevitably change over time. But, you know, one thing that people don't often realize is that the story is not out of their control completely. You'll have people sometimes who, who have had, for example, someone who's been very mistreated as a child and who lives with a victim narrative. You can write a victim narrative out of a terrible childhood, or you can write a survivor narrative, or you can even write a triumph narrative out of the same data. I mean, data are the facts, but data is, as we know, in social sciences or in any field, data is to be interpreted and can almost always be interpreted in multiple ways. So you could have somebody who's been treated horribly in childhood going around with an attitude of, look how tough and strong and whole I am, despite my early life. You know, I'm fantastic. And of course, the person who goes through life proud of their strength and their personal skills and the resourcefulness and everything they move in the world in a completely different way than somebody who experiences themselves as a victim. You know, every person they interact with during the day, you know, at work, in the grocery store, at home, it's totally different than somebody who goes through life as a victim. And I'm not at all saying that the person wasn't victimized or making light at all of that experience. And I'm also not suggesting they should deny the past or pretend it was better than it was. I'm just asking what is the story, you know, the ultimate point of the story, the core, the truth, whatever, the shining nugget that you pull out of any experience in your past? And how do you choose to define it in relation to who you are now? And that's a question of choice. That is something you can control. And that's really empowering. If you're talking about somebody at work who's moving into a different kind of work, moving from sales into human resources or something, or a company that, you know, was previously producing soft drinks and now is going into high tech or something. You know, the story can't be about, I am static. I am what I did. You know, I am a salesperson. So that's it. That's me. That's my identity. And I can't I can't possibly do human resources. And it's not just a matter of mindset. It really is the story you tell. Like if, if the story you tell is, I'm someone who likes challenges, I'm reliable, I'm smart, I show up to meetings prepared, I'm honest, I have people skills, then that story allows you to move 
not only into other positions, but into all sorts of relationships and to go through life in a completely different way. If you're somebody who decides that your story is, you know, you as a company, your story is that you're experts in, you know, in a certain kind of drink, you produce these soft drinks and that's what you do, then of course that narrative won't allow you to move to where you need to go. So I think when people talk about stories and they think of them as fictional or sort of silly or trivial, they don't understand that actually it reflects and also shapes the deepest parts of you and can allow you to have a completely different life if you're active in shaping your story. I love that so much. Um, Being the owner of your own story, and we're not, to your point earlier, talking about ignoring or pretending that the things that didn't that happened to you didn't happen or not even disregarding the feelings that you, that are still with you about those moments in your past but it's about taking greater ownership of them and and also understanding that we are well I mean this is something that I'd love to get your perspective on is that we see our lives in a very linear way so you know start middle end and even with our experiences like a moving house okay preparing for the move, getting to the move, uh, which, I'm about to, oh. which I'm about to do. And then you kind of have these expectations of what will happen at that next stage after you get through the prologue, right? Like I'll settle in and I will be happy. Like we always seek for that resolution or like the Cinderella arc where we'll come out of that awful situation and there'll be a trigger, a turning point that will move us into the next stage of that story where we're finally going to resolve the problem. This is a part of the challenge, I think, for me personally grappling with psychology is that I feel a lot of people do lean on those sorts of tools and methods to resolve things versus just maybe realizing that some things will never be resolved and some things will never be fully mended and being comfortable with that. But taking a greater sense of control of what, like, what do you do with that? How do you move on? and make your life more of what you want it to be. Wow, I so agree with you, Joe. And that may sound funny coming from someone who spent many years in the mental health field, but I think, you know, I have such, um, I wouldn't say concern, but you know, there's a, a lot of self-help stuff that is good. And there are also some that, as, as you say, and it's interesting, you've, you're alluding to another story and even a mythical story about Cinderella, but the idea that, there's going to be a happy ending. The prince will come. Well, of course, that story is amazing because it's about a man rescuing a woman and you don't have to do it for yourself. Someone will fix everything. Mm-hmm. But the whole idea of understanding what, what life is, which of course <laughs> none of us do, but it's certainly, it's a struggle. It's not easy and it's not fixable, you know? And I think the belief that there's something or someone who can make everything okay for you, and even better than okay, who can make you happy, is one of the great and most damaging myths in existence. Because ultimately, and a lot of people don't like to hear this, and I remember when I was a therapist, they certainly didn't want to hear it, and they would get angry at me. But each of us is responsible for our life. And actually, we're also responsible to some extent, and that's a complicated concept for other people. I mean, to what extent and what are the boundaries and all that. But 
yes, there are things that one has to live with. You can't change the past. And I was never um, a practitioner of narrative therapy as a mode of therapy, but there's a whole mode of therapy, which is basically you sit with the child or the adult and you get them to rewrite the story. And at some level, that's what all living is about, is trying to understand your story and then also taking responsibility for the story that you choose to live the rest of your life with and the story that you choose to share with others. And we all know people who have had it rough. And in some ways, we've all had it rough because life life is rough. But I'm thinking of someone I know who never, ever, ever sees anything good and just, you know, is still talking about what happened 45 years ago. And that at some level is a decision she's made about the narrative of her life. And she's entitled to it's her life. But there are alternatives. And I think that's very hope-giving and that's very empowering, both in our, in our personal lives and in our professional lives. You know, a company or an individual does not have to accept the position as a static, permanent fact. Everything can change. And the world is full of constant change. I think we were sort of touching on this at the very start of the conversation, is that change is a natural part of life, whether it's as individuals, we change. And, you know, I love what you said before about, you know, the facts about me and my life are never static. So at any point in time, they could be evolving and changing. And I really like that because I think also it links back to perception and the ability to change our minds. So we have these, particularly in the US, what I'm finding is that we we get very wedded to our identities as being static as they stand, we stand for something. And that makes it so, so hard to change your mind because then you're hypocrite or you're a, a liar. Like we instantly jump to the next label. No, absolutely. You know, when I left a full-time academic position, which I did 22 years ago. I was a tenured professor and I left so I'd have more time to write fiction, which is what I've done for the past 22 years. And I remember thinking, well, who am I now? And what am I now? And if I'm a writer, am I allowed to do this? Am I allowed to do that? Can I still be involved in intellectual life? Am I still allowed to, you know, what do writers do? And then it's not what writers do. It's what I want to do. And I also write, you know, you change it from I am from a noun writer to the verb I write. Mm. And then it's me as the core. And then there are all these things that one does. And I think it's really something that we are taught in childhood, you know, this idea that there's a sort of standard core there's a you that's that's essential and and maybe there is and maybe there isn't there's a whole lot of debate about that but i remember sort of assuming as children do that where they're living and the way they live is is normal that's the way everybody lives and then i read a book it was this wonderful book about a, a girl an indigenous girl navajo girl and i just it completely blew my mind i was about 10 years old the girl in the book was the same age and it described how she lived, how she spent her days, what was right, what was wrong in her community. And it was just completely changed me. It was, oh, you mean there are all these different ways to be and to live. And I understood that what I'd taken to be factual and truthful, to bring those two words together, just 
wasn't so. I mean, there are multiple truths and multiple ways to be. And that all comes from a story, but it, it became something that changed the story of my life. Because once you really listen to other people's stories, you can't help but be changed and your story changes with it. So we're all in process in that way. And it's so easy to doubt yourself as well when you're trying to put a label of, okay, I'm a writer now, or I'm a podcaster now versus just saying, I'm going to write, or I'm going to produce some hopefully great conversations. It's the act of doing versus the act of feeling like you need to meet some sort of a, a standard that you are going back to childhood that you probably had envisaged when you were younger of oh, this is what it means to be a writer is that I I had that very early on when I I've always loved writing and I always kind of felt like well I'm not you know good enough I'm not worthy I'm not going to be a Dostoevsky so what's the point versus like using it more as a stepping stone to get closer to something inside of yourself that's calling you to express yourself in that way and it obviously can work across any platform or any anything that you're passionate about but without feeling like you need to follow that narrative that you maybe grew up with as being the ideal of that no that's amazing how that thing can be so limiting and first of all i mean i i'm just meeting you today but it's so obvious how how imaginative and literary and creative you are um, and of course you could write <laughs> and you're of course you are writing and creating but you know what you raise here are really this is a very important point is it's the false narratives that we get i mean i too sort of had that feeling until a certain point which was first of all i mean all my images of writers uh, this dates me perhaps but they were men and they were all white men and of a certain cultural background that was different from mine. And I remember thinking, I just can't picture, I'll never look like that. So I'll never be able to do that. And if I'm not as famous as Dostoevsky, what's the point? Then that's a failure, you know? And it's interesting, the whole thing. Yesterday, I happened to be in a taxi and the driver was a woman and she was trying to write a book. So we were talking and she, I said, I'm a writer. She said, oh, are you successful? So I started to laugh and I said, well, it depends how you define it. How do you define it? Well, have you been published? I said, yes, yes, three times. And, but that whole concept of what is the bar we set for ourselves? And I think most importantly, in a way, is what are these stories preventing us from doing? And how can we pull them down? Because they're just walls and they're they're just something somebody said to us. They're not real. I mean, that's the thing about stories. They're totally real in one way, but they're also subject to your response as an adult, especially the stories we were taught as children. You're an adult, you have the right, I mean, that's part of the joy and the freedom and the power of adulthood. You look at these things and you go, I can't believe that, that's such nonsense. But you believed it because you were told it and you trusted who told it. And now you get to rewrite it. It definitely was a question that I wanted to ask you was around that 
time in our lives when we're young, and obviously this is very contextual, so based on your parents, if you had parents, how you were raised, where in parts of the world, but the stories that were told when we're little as moral guides, or even I would say like the research is about moral guides around proper behavior and how you should, you know, grow up to express your values and fit into the community. But I think it's also about aspirations and what does success mean? And particularly in the capitalist world that we're in, what does success mean? Going back to that question that you got from your taxi driver. So how limiting are those stories that we tell our children? That's a great question. You know, As I mentioned, I just became a grandmother, and so I'm getting particularly interested in baby books and children's books and what they tell us. And in fact, there were a couple of books that I saved from childhood, or I have, you know, new copies, relatively new copies. I read them with horror at some of the assumptions and the things in them. And, you know, this, uh, I won't name the book. I don't want to be sued, but a book that I loved and a book of poetry written by British writer, which was just incredibly colonialist and offensive and sexist, because that period, I mean, it was written in 1940-something or 50-something and passed down to me, you know, generations. But in addition to the books that try to teach, these very didactic books that want to teach us to be obedient and good, according, you know, in quotation marks and with very certain meanings of specific meanings of what good and bad are, There are also books for children that depict rebellion and deviance and so-called badness and heroes standing up for the kid who's bullied in the class or the kid who does something different because they just want to do something different. And I think that the choice of the stories that we tell children is an incredibly important responsibility. Again, I won't mention the name, but there's a publisher whom I approached because some of the stories I was publishing in my journal in jewishfiction.net, which is www.jewishfiction.net. They're all free, all the stories, over 500 stories, by the way. Some of them seemed that they would be suitable for a certain children's publisher because they were written about children and in accessible language. And this publisher said to me, oh, we don't publish stories for children where there's anything unhappy. There's no sickness, there's no death, there are no problems. I mean, what do you think? Children are idiots. Children know there's evil in the world. Children experience injustice and unkindness and violence and viciousness. They're human beings. They're not unseeing people, unfeeling either. So, I mean, I just found that astonishing. But yes, those books can be very limiting. And I imagine if they were given to us by people assuming hopefully people who loved us and they thought they were, quote, good for us. But I think it's a really interesting exercise to, which I was forced into unwittingly by going all through my children's books, my, you know, my books as a child. You look at them now critically as an adult and you go, wow, this is trying to tell, to tell a child they should never talk back. In some cases, you should never talk. You should be seen and not heard. So you go, okay. I'm not giving that to my grandchild, and I want my grandchild to learn that he's allowed to have an opinion, he's allowed to stand stand up for what he thinks and what he wants, and hopefully books about courage, where he will, he will be the kid who comes forward if he sees something wrong. So, you know, yes, these books were limiting. Those kinds of books are very limiting, but there are other books 
And I think those are the books that we should be telling, reading to children. And those kinds of stories, if we make up stories for children, that we should be telling them. Yes. And it really is astonishing, like the idea that things have to be altruistic for children or free of harm, like we're trying to shelter them from what life is like. And just because there are awful parts of life, it doesn't mean that life is awful. I feel like it's quite similar to when we tell our own personal stories to children or even to each other. We always kind of frame them in a way that resolves them. I I remember, you know, talking to a lot of my friends when I was a teenager going, I actually learned more about my parents now and what they went through. And I realized that they're just people, like they're human beings. They're not these perfect protectors, right? They've gone through awful things and it actually creates so much more, obviously, respect for them and what they've gone through, but also, I guess, a feeling of resilience, right? Like they've made it through this awful thing that happened. And that means that I have the ability to do the same thing. Well, that's right. I mean, and that's, you know, that's the power of telling the truth. I mean, I think it's, it's such a, an impulse of a parent to protect the child, you know. And the, the ironic thing is that often when parents sugarcoat and, and borderline lie to their children about themselves and their lives and about life in general, the effect on the child is that they feel they have to protect the parent, like the parent's too stupid to know what the mm-hmm. world is really like. Like, I remember once being told by someone, by an adult, no, every, you know, people are nice. I must have been about six or seven years old. I was already at school. You know, no, people are nice. People are nice. And I remember looking at them and thinking, well, you're pathetic. Like, you don't understand the world, you know? <laughs> so I, I think that thing about, you know, but of course, when we try to protect people, we're also trying to protect ourselves and our self-image. You want your child to look at you in a certain way. You're afraid that the parts of yourself, you mentioned darkness before, your own darkness, your own weaknesses, will they still respect me? Will they still love me? So I think there's a lot of courage that it takes for not just parents, children, but team members, colleagues, everyone in our lives to, to tell truthful stories. I mean, you're obviously not going to tell the full story to your boss or whatever. One one shouldn't. One has one's personal boundaries. But some degree of truth-telling and remembering that our, our stories are ours to create and our lives are ours to create really changes the kind of stories and narratives that, that are going to fill our world. Because when you tell the truth to a friend, who hopefully you have chosen carefully, that person tells you the truth and then you go, oh, oh, and then you feel like a human being in the world as opposed to everybody sort of faking their way, you know? Yes, yes. And often that fear of if I let something out there into the world verbally, if I say it, it becomes true and it becomes all that I am versus, you know, having the the bravery to be vulnerable and just let that be, particularly with, you know, your your friends and your, the group of people that you trust in your life. So I think that's really powerful. There is something that I was um, really curious about through your work as a social worker. I mean, I'm sure that you would have heard a lot of, you know, really awful, <laughs> you know, things that happen to people 
that they're struggling with. Um, but what is there one sort of story that stays with you where someone has done everything that we've been talking about on this show where they've sort of changed their own perception of themselves? Look, I think what we're really talking about in this whole conversation is the capacity to change. It's hard when to convince people who are feeling hopeless that there's something that can be done. But it all comes down to telling a different story. And even if they're not readers, you can help them see. You can even sit and make up a story for them about just picture if yourself with a group of friends. Picture if you went to the party at Saturday night. Picture if you were doing okay in school. I mean, that's a story. Oh, I can see that picture. Okay, you know, let's keep talking about the picture and how you're going to make that picture. And then all of a sudden you're partway there. So you you are probably constantly observing people and observing what's happening in the world. But what is one thing that you do to push yourself to look outside of what you're familiar with? Well, I think that's very important to look outside. And I love that that's the name of your, you know, your podcast is about going outside because it's so easy to stay inside ourselves and get stuck there and forget. When I need a new perspective, or I want some wisdom, or I want to get outside myself and learn a new way of seeing things. I go to books, uh, in particular fiction, because what I'm not looking for is information. I'm looking for deeper kind of knowledge. I try to understand how other people, even if they're fictional, they're real to me, as you know, as Raskolnikov was real, uh, how other people live and think and solve their problems so I can learn from them. And I find that I'm reading a book now that's, you know, about an old man in Midwestern United States in a small town. But I'm, I'm like totally inside this person. And I just love this book. And, I, and I'm learning a lot from it. So for me, if you, if you enter into the inner lives of people who are very different from me, I find a lot of inspiration and new perspectives and, and strategies for living in a world that is constantly changing and incredibly complex. Dr. Nora Gold, um, this was an incredible conversation, incredibly thoughtful. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much. I've loved talking to you, Joe. What an incredibly thought-provoking conversation. And if you enjoyed this topic of narratives and stories, we did cover storytelling in episode 10 with another doctor, Dr. Belinda Calderon. I'll link that in the show notes. I'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Keep looking outside.